All right, well, as Pastor Joseph said, we're going to continue on with our series into the Gospel of, of John, and today we're going to be reading uh, chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. And this is actually a continuation of the teaching that Jesus was doing in the, uh, in the temple during the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. And that was John chapter 7, 14 through 52. So not last week, but the two weeks before, we went ahead and looked at what uh, Jesus was teaching in the temple. And last week, you remember that Jesus shared with us the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. Has anybody ever thought something was odd about that story with where it is right there? <laughs> it seems very interesting because here's the thing is Jesus is teaching in the temple then all of a sudden this story of the woman caught in adultery shows up and then all of a sudden Jesus is back in the temple teaching the Jewish people that were there again and the reality is is if you look in your Bible on that section there's going to be a little note that says somewhere something along the lines of the earliest and the most reliable manuscripts do not have John 7 53 uh, 7 verse 53 through chapter 8 verse 11 and almost all scholars today actually agree that that wasn't a part of the original gospel of John. Now the question we ask is, oh no, does that mean that we should just throw it out? No, no, that's, the reality is, is that there's a couple things. This was, this was likely true oral tradition of what Jesus had taught. This is something that actually happened. And the Greek scribists who were copying these manuscripts wanted to make sure that this teaching was recorded because it was something that Jesus had done. In addition, when you read it, it's very consistent with how Jesus would have, would have behaved. You know, it's not like something was added and we're like, wow, this doesn't fit here. seems like someone's adding in their own thing. This was very consistent with what we know of Jesus throughout the rest of the Scripture. So it's very likely that this was just an oral tradition that needed to get plugged in somewhere. So they went ahead and plugged it in here. Um, but that... Just in case you're wondering, we don't need to throw the teaching away. It's actually very good teaching, and it, it illustrates stuff that's consistent with what Jesus taught. But it may explain to you if you've ever wondered, wow, this seems kind of weird and out of place. Because we go from Jesus talking about his identity and his authority, then to talking about this woman who was caught in adultery, and then back today, we're going to see that Jesus is going to be speaking of his authority and his identity again, right? And that's his, his authority is that he was sent by God, and his identity is that he actually is God himself, and that's actually why they wanted to kill him. You know, it just seems like over and over we keep saying they wanted to arrest him, they wanted to throw him in jail, they were seeking to kill him, and it's because he was making these very bold claims. And today, as we go into this next section here, we're going to see Jesus making another very bold claim. And today, he makes the claim that he is the light of the world. And he's going to continue on in his teaching as a declaration of who he is. So in verse 12, it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now you remember that Jesus is actually teaching right now, this is the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And what, one of the major features of this feast, this feast that you would see in the temple, were these giant uh, lamps that were burning brightly in the women's courts there in the temple. It's very interesting. They actually, the wicks of these lamps that would be burning in the woman's court there um, were made out of old priestly garments. So once a priestly garment wasn't uh, able to be worn anymore, it had worn out, they took those and they made the wicks that lit these lamps during this time. And the idea was that these 
lanterns, these lights, they, they illuminated the temple area around them and it was to remind them of when the Jews were wandering in the desert and they had the, the pillar of uh, the, 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 the cloud and then the pillar of fire. And this was specifically to remind them of the pillar of fire that they were following. So you have to understand that these bright lights were a direct representative and they represented to the Jewish people God's very presence with them. And in addition to that, the, the, the scholars that I was reading that talked about it, it wouldn't just light the temple. These would actually light, you could see them throughout much of Jerusalem, these bright lights that represented God. So imagine this, you have Jesus in the temple and he's got these massive lights behind him that, says, that, that represent God and, and how they followed him in the desert. And Jesus gets up with that backdrop and he says, I am the light of the world. You see, the, one of the things Jesus was doing here is he was making a declaration of divinity. You know, we, we've talked about, uh, even through just the Gospel of John, about how many people say, Jesus never said that he was God. But the reality is, is that Jesus is always saying that he's God. And here's one of the examples is he's making this illustration of who he is, the light of the world. And the reality is over and over and over in the Scripture, it talks about Jesus actually being divinity. And the reality is, is that John had already, had already used this imagery before. You say, Pastor Wayne, I think you're, just, you're stretching it a little far. Maybe that's not what, what he was talking about. Maybe he wasn't even standing in front of the lights. But the reality is, is that John has already used this imagery before. In John chapter 1, verse 4, it says, In him was life. And the life was the light of man. John 1.9, it says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming in to the world. This, this idea of light being Jesus has already been, been uh, uh, connected by John already in the gospel. In addition, light is always used to represent God. So Jesus is actually declaring his unique position to everyone in the world that he is the one true light. Like, he's not just any light. He's not just a light. He's not just a light among many lights. He is the light to the world. And he illuminates, illuminates the way, the path, for all of us who are walking in a dark world. Amen? You know, some of my favorite descriptions of God have to do when we're using this, this uh, illustration of God being light. You know, and it's... I, I, it's I think for me, it's because one, it's so easy to understand when you're comparing God to light. And two, light has some very unique properties that I just find amazing and so demonstrative of who God is. So the first thing is, is we can easily understand this simple illustration, right? God is light. Has anybody ever went out in the desert here, particularly when it's really dark? What do you want to take with you? A flashlight, right? What is the purpose of the flashlight? To illuminate your way in the dark area around you. That way you can make sure you stay on the path and you don't trip over any rocks. Or if you're my wife, you're worried about running into a tarantula or a snake or any other number of things that she doesn't want to deal with. Right? So she's using this light to, to guide her way. And that's a perfect illustration of who Jesus is. He is guiding our way. He's illuminating the path before us so we don't trip and we don't stumble and we don't fall and we don't get harmed. I'm like, that's a beautiful illustration of who Jesus is. In addition, if you think of all the other ways that we use light to direct people, think about a lighthouse. What is a lighthouse there for? 
It's for when ships come through, they one can guide their way by it. They can use it as a marker to help navigate where they're going, but it also shines light on an area where it could damage the ship if it gets involved in that situation. You know, it can run up against the rocks. And just like that, Jesus is to us. He's shining brightly, illuminating the dangers, and also being a guiding beacon for where we need to go. And do you know why that they uh, use light in those situations? Because there's nothing that can put out light, right? It's not, like, it's not like we could turn up the darkness in the ocean and block the light. Like It doesn't matter how dark it is, you can still see the light. And I think that's probably my favorite illustration when we're talking about God and using, uh, using light as an example of who He is. You know there's no such thing as a, as a dark light. Like for instance, we can buy flashlights and when you turn flashlights on, the, light, the darkness has to flee from the light. But there's no such thing as a light that, or anyway, it wouldn't be called a light either, right? It would just be called the dark, I don't know. And you, 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 but there's nothing that you could turn on that just puts out a beam of darkness that chases the light away. The reality is, is that when there is light, the darkness always has to flee from the light. There, there is no option. I mean, if you go into your house, have you ever turned the light on and it just stayed dark? With, if your light was working, <laughs> right? You don't, you don't have like one little area in your house that just remains being dark. When the light comes on, the light destroys the darkness. That is always the case. And darkness cannot coexist with the light. Where there is light, by definition, there is no darkness. Amen? Isn't that a beautiful picture of who God is? And the reality is, is that light always overcomes the darkness and right here he says i'm the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life you see if we follow jesus and this means to respond to him and to obey him then our path will be illuminated and we will not stumble and we will not succumb to darkness and death but instead we will have life amen this isn't good guys i've got like 12 slides to get through. We've got through two, and it's already been 10 minutes. We might be late today, but that's okay, because we got some good stuff to go over. Amen. John 8, chapter 13 and 14, it says this. So the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So, as seems to be the case, Jesus makes this incredibly bold statement about who he is. And what's the first thing the Pharisees do? They call him a liar. He said, wait a minute, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony isn't true. Because here's the thing, the Pharisees assumed that there was no other evidence or testimony that would support Jesus' claims. They thought he was just some dude running around pretending to be, to be God, pretending to be the light, pretending to see, saying all these things, and he's just talking nonsense. They thought he was crazy. And actually, I don't, I don't even think that they thought he was crazy. They just thought he was a liar. And as far as they were concerned, Jesus was just blaspheming whenever he said all of these things. And they didn't understand that whether or not he was bearing witness about himself, his claims were true. In addition, God actually testifies on his behalf and vindicates his claims anyway. Jesus is going to make that clear over the next few verses that Jesus, uh, that the Father is actually vindicating all of his claims. He's backing him up on all these things. 
But the thing is, is, is that, that they didn't understand that even, even if he was the only one bearing witness about himself, his claims were true. You see, Jesus knew where he was coming or where he was going, and, and uh, sorry, where he came from and from where he was going. And he understood that his words were truth. And here's the thing about truth. Truth is true regardless of whether people believe it or not. Jesus may have been giving witness, bearing witness about himself, but he, it's not going to invalidate his claims, even if he's the only one bearing witness. Truth is truth, no matter if somebody believes it or not. And one of the funniest things that, that, that uh, I, or I guess it's one of the more interesting things, I just pulled up Pastor Joseph. Well, not really, not really funny, it's just interesting. <laughs> Hallelujah. But uh, uh, one of the things that... Um, um, I find interesting is if you're ever talking to somebody who, who, who doesn't believe in God and they claim they're an atheist. I don't believe in God. There's no such thing as God. I'm an atheist. I say, well, I don't believe there's a such thing as atheists. And they'll tell me, well, what do you mean? You got one standing right in front of me. And I say, oh, so you mean that I cannot believe in something and it can still be true? That's interesting. That's an interesting thought. Because the reality is, is God is true no matter who believes in him. Amen. What Jesus is saying is true even if he's the only one saying it. Because by definition, truth is truth. There is no such thing as your truth and my truth. This is one of the greatest fallacies that's being shared all over our culture today is that there's multiple versions of the truth. That just doesn't make any sense. Truth by definition is truth and it, it is it. it it's, 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 it's solely by itself. There can't be multiple versions. If there is multiple versions, then by definition, the first one is not truth. Amen? So Jesus says, listen, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. It doesn't matter if I do or I don't. Because I know who sent me. I know where I'm going. I understand that what I'm saying is true. And then he goes on in verse 15 and 16. He says, you judge according to the flesh. And I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. You see, the problem the Pharisees were running into is that they were judging by human standards. They had an incomplete knowledge and understanding of who Jesus was and what he was sent to do. So their judgment was limited completely by what they could see. And all they saw was a man who they claimed was lying and blaspheming and making stuff up. They, 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 all they saw was this, this external perspective because they had incomplete knowledge and they were making assumptions. And all they could see was that Jesus was lying. You see, that's the problem you run into when you're talking about someone, and in this case, Jesus. They didn't know about his heavenly origin and they didn't know about where he was going, right? Where he came from. That's what he says here earlier. Where I, I know where I come from, his heavenly origin. And then he says, and I know where I'm going because he had a divine mission from God. And the Pharisees, they didn't know anything about this. So they couldn't actually judge him correctly. And then he says, and I didn't, yet I don't come to judge anyone. You see, Jesus actually didn't come to judge people, he came to save them. At least in this coming, he's going to come back and do some judging. But at the moment, he's here to save. He's not coming to judge people. He's coming to save people. That was his purpose. And then he says, and even if I were to judge, even if I do judge, my judgment is true because it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. 
You see, he judges alongside the Father, who's the one who sent him. In other words, what he's trying to say is that my judgment and the Father's judgment are in alignment. He says, listen, right now I'm not judging anybody, but even if I were, it would be in alignment with the Father. Just like he said a second ago, even if nobody else bears witness with me, what I say is true. Even if I judge, my judgment is true. Him and the Father's judgment are in alignment. Anybody here ever seen the knight, A Knight's Tale? It's got one of my favorite lines in a movie because every time I hear it, it just makes me think about God. So if you've ever watched A Knight's Tale, it's got William, who was actually a, uh, a knight's assistant. He was a squire, and the knight died. And he goes ahead and he assumes the knight position, and he ends up trying to, to compete in, in, you know, in jousting um, throughout the whole movie. That's what him about, trying to fulfill this role of being a knight. But he's not actually a knight. And towards the end of the movie, it's actually found out that he's not really a knight. So they arrest him, and they put him in the stockade. And when he's there, actually his friends that were alongside him, they were actually playing his, his squire and his attendants when he was a knight. They were his close friends, and they were there protecting him because he's in the stockades, and they're throwing tomatoes at him, and they're throwing fruits, and they're throwing rocks and all these things. So his friends are there protecting him. And at this time, Prince Edward walks up. And he sees him, and this is what he says to him. And just to give you a little background, when, when uh, William was, was uh, uh, acting as a knight, Prince Edward would oftentimes enter competitions as a different, uh, a different knight. He wouldn't use his real name because if anybody were to ever joust against the, the, the prince, because he was royalty, it's an automatic death penalty. So he had to hide who he was and able to be able to compete in these games. So this is what Prince Edward says to him. He says, what a pair we make, huh? both trying to hide who we are, both unable to do so. Your men love you. If I knew nothing else about you, that would be enough. But you also tilt when you should withdraw, and that is nightly too. And then Edward, Prince Edward, he turns to the crowd and he says, he may appear to be of humble origins, but my personal historians have discovered that he is descendant from an ancient royal line. And the crowd begins murmuring, they're not understanding what's being said. But then he looks at him and he says this, this is my word, and as such, it is beyond contestation. That's what it's like when God speaks. This is his word, and it is beyond contestation. When God speaks, it is true. There is no other alternative it is beyond contestation. So when Jesus speaks and he says, listen, my judgment is like his. We're in the, same, uh, in the same mind. We have the same agreement. That means when Jesus speaks, his word is beyond contestation. And Jesus could have just left it there. But he doesn't. He says in verse 17, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me as well. He could have just left it there, right? Because when Jesus speaks, his word is without contestation. It's beyond contestation. When he speaks, it's true. But he says, you know what? Even still, your law says that if it's according to two witnesses, then, the, then, then it's a trustworthy statement. So I bear witness of myself and my Father bears witness as well. <laughs> See, the thing was is that the Pharisees, they didn't know who Jesus was. 
They didn't know that he was in the Father and the Father was in him. In John 10, 38, he says, but even if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. John 14, 9 through 11, Jesus said, have I been so long with you and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And then the words that I say do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works believe me that i am in the father and the father is in me and then john 17 verse 21 that all may that, that they may all be one just as you father and in me and i and you see the the pharisees didn't understand this this connection that jesus had and and this is one of the things that we see that that's the reality of the trinity because we have three distinct persons the father the son and the holy spirit but we have only one god and they are they are in one another they are the same as one another yet they are still completely different and distinct persons this is why that jesus could could be sent by the father and also come from the father yet still be one with the father because they are distinct individuals but they are also still one god and then also when jesus so this is why when jesus spoke when jesus said something then he fulfills this law that requires two witnesses and you can read about that in deuteronomy 17:6 or deuteronomy 19:15 it talks about if you have the witness of of uh, of two two testimonies is what you need um, in order to claim something is true but the reality is this here, that Jesus and the Father both bore witness. They were the two testimonies that was required by the law to say that this testimony is true. His confirming witness was the Father. And that should have been enough for these guys. But in verse 19, it says, They said to him, Therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. You see, by asking him where his father is, they were basically saying, bring him here. We want to question him. Remember what happened the last time somebody said that they wanted to argue with God? That was Job. God showed up and... <laughs> <laughs> ran them up one side and down the other <laughs> but that's what they're saying they're like, listen i, I want to talk i want to talk to you. you say your father's bearing witness about you i want to talk to him because they figured if his father was one of the other witnesses he should be there to defend this testimony but the thing is is we just see their ignorance they don't understand what jesus is trying to say they don't realize that jesus is in the father and the father is in jesus when jesus speaks he's act they're actually getting both testimonies so Jesus points out their ignorance and says, listen, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He's basically saying, listen, if you knew me, or knew, uh, you would know my father. You would know that he doesn't need to be here to, to make these claims. You would know that it's, well, I'm speaking about God the Father. You would know these things and you would understand that what I'm saying is true. But instead, they had to ask, where is he? So we begin to see this familiar pattern that we've seen over and over in this gospel so far, is that whatever Jesus says, just right over the top of their heads. They just don't get it. They've already made up their mind about who Jesus is, so they're not even willing to entertain the opportunity that he's someone else. And then it says, no one arrested him because his hour 
had not yet come. We talked about this a little bit more in depth a couple weeks ago, but the reality is, is that, that God was making sure that Jesus could fulfill his duty, what he was there to do. So even though they hated what he was saying, even though they hated him to their core, even though they wanted him dead, even though so many of the Pharisees and truthfully some of the people disagreed with him and they wanted to arrest him, they didn't because his time had not yet come. God had different plans, amen? And then in verses eight, uh, 21 through 22, it says, So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. You see, Jesus once again is now reminding you. Remember, a few weeks ago we talked about this. He's already told them this once, and, and they didn't get it then. And you're going to see that that same old familiar pattern shows up. They're not going to get it again. So... He once again tells them of his impending death. And notice the words in the statement. It's one of the things I love. He says, I am going away. You notice he doesn't say, you are going to take me away or you guys are going to kill me because the reality is, is that Jesus is making clear that whatever happens, he is complicit and actually uh, him and the Father are the author of what's going to happen. He is in control. He is not being taken. He has given his life willingly. Amen. This was his plan. And his intent was to return to the Father. And then he warns them and said, listen, where I'm going, you're going to still continue to seek me, but you're not going to find me. You see, they were already looking for the Messiah. The Jews have been looking for the Messiah for some time, but now they have him standing right in front of them, and they just keep looking right past him. What he's saying here is, he says, I'm going away, You'll, you will seek me. I don't think he means you're going, to look, you're going to be looking for the man right here to seek me. What he's saying is that you're going to be looking for the Messiah. He says, listen, I'm going away as the Messiah to do his role, and you're going to continue to seek me, the Messiah, but where I'm going... You cannot come and you're going to die in your sin looking for somebody that was already here. You see, the Messiah was here. He was sitting right in front of him. And when he went away, they would still, and to this day, the Jews still to this day are looking for the Messiah. But how many of you know you can't find something that's already been found? Jesus has already came. They can look all they want. There's not a new Messiah coming. He was already here. And he says, listen, when I go away, you're going to continue to seek me but then you're going to die in your sins. And that's exactly what is happening right now as people continue to look for a new Messiah while ignoring the true Messiah who is already here. That's the thing. As they were rejecting who Jesus was. And if you reject who Jesus was, if you reject his identity, then you're rejecting salvation. And they completely misunderstand once again. What do you mean you're going to go somewhere? Are you going to kill yourself? They figured the only way he could go somewhere that they couldn't find him is if he committed suicide. I mean, they got it half right. He was going to die. The difference was it wasn't suicide. They were going to kill him. But it was always his plan. And they're never going to find him, the Messiah, because he was already there and they missed him. But then, thanks be to God, this isn't true for those of us who are believed who are believers, who already have put our trust in him. See, we have found the Messiah, and that's the option. You either continue looking for a Messiah, not looking to Jesus, rejecting who Jesus was. If you do that, you reject him, then you will die in your sins. Or the other option is you put your trust in Jesus, and he is the light of the world, illuminating our path 
resulting in life. Amen? And then he said, in 8, 23 through 24, he says, so he said to them again, and he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. In order to go with Jesus and inherit eternal life, you must be born again. You must put your trust in him. You have to no longer be a part of this world. If you're a part of this world, then you're stuck in darkness. But we must become a part of the heavenly kingdom. That's what it says in John 15, 18 through 19. This is for those who believe in him. It says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So the thing is, is that when you put your trust in Jesus, you become part of the heavenly kingdom. You are now just a sojourner, an alien in this dark world. And you are with him. And that's the problem here. He says, listen, you guys, you're of this world, but I'm not of this world. If you want to be with Jesus, you've got to be part of his world. And he says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe me that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is why I don't think he's talking about uh, when he says you're, you're, you will seek me. He's talking about seeking the Messiah, not him specifically, other than the fact that he is the Messiah. Because he says, listen, if you don't believe in me, if you do not believe that I am he, that I am the Messiah, if you reject my identity and put your faith in something else or you're waiting for something else to come, the end result is that you will die in your sins. The reality is, is that we must put our trust in Jesus Christ and receive that free gift of salvation. Because if we don't, then Jesus clearly shares the outcome. We will die in our sins. Amen? And they go on. In verse 25, he says to him, "Who are?" So they say to him, Who are you? And Jesus said, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. <laughs> this is a funny... If you think about what's happening here, this is kind of funny, right? What has Jesus been doing this entire time? Telling them who he is. The whole time. Every time Jesus speaks, he's telling them who he is. And now they're frustrated. They don't understand what he's saying because, and the thing is, 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 as you read this, none of the stuff that Jesus is saying is difficult to comprehend. The problem is, is they had already made up their mind about who Jesus was, and it didn't matter what he said. It wasn't going to influence their current thoughts and opinions of who he was. So finally, they're like, man, I, we just don't understand, although it's been clear the whole time. So they finally just flat out say him, who are you? Jesus, tell us plainly who you are. And Jesus says, it's just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Like I, sometimes I wish I was, I wonder what the tone of this was. Like, was he like sarcastically frustrated? Like, haven't you guys been listening to me? I've been talking this whole time. Are you just in one ear and out the other? I've been telling you who I am. I wonder if he was frustrated or I wonder if he was just like annoyed or if, or if, or if it was amusing to him, like, oh, guys, like, I've been telling you the whole time. I don't know. Don't ask me these questions. This is all I got. But I, I try to, I can't imagine what he's going through. Like, it's got to be super frustrating <laughs> that he's been telling them the whole time and they just won't hear. They just won't listen. 
So Jesus doesn't even bother them with further answers. Like, listen, I've been telling you who I am the whole time. He says, listen, I have much to say about you and much to judge in verse 26, but he who, would sent, who, he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. You see, Jesus, Jesus could have actually shared a lot more with them. He could have actually shared a lot more about what he knew about them, right? He says, listen, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. He says, listen, I have much to say about you, but there's something that's more important that I say. You see, Jesus had much to say and to judge about them, and the reality is, is that if he were to judge, his judgment would be true, right? But Jesus also knew that his time wasn't yet. He would come back and judge at some point in a second. You know, in the second coming, we know that Jesus is going to be there, sitting on the, the white throne, separating the goats from the sheep. There, That's when he'll be doing that. But right now, that's not his purpose. So he says, listen, I have much to say about you, much to judge, but instead I, I need to, to focus on my heavenly mission, what the Father has sent me to do. And the reality is, is that the, they were already storing up all kinds of judgment for themselves. By rejecting Jesus, they were storing up judgment for themselves. Jesus didn't need to say anything further to con condemn them because they were already doing it to themselves. So he says, but instead now I'm going to focus on the Father and only declare what I have heard him saying. And the thing is, the message that Jesus was sharing was reliable. It was reliable because the one who sent him is true. It's reliable because when the Father seeks, his word is beyond contestation. And then once again, they misunderstand the point. Verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. <laughs> I don't know how they keep missing the point over and over and over again, but they still didn't get that Jesus was talking about God the Father. They had already made up their minds and were unable and unwilling to accept what he was plainly saying over and over and over. You know, I wonder how many times would Jesus have to repeat the same thing over and over before it finally got through their skulls and they could understand what he was saying. And the reality is, is that for these people, there probably wasn't a number. They weren't actually interested in the truth. One of the, the greatest things that you can do when you're talking to somebody and they want to debate with you about whether God is real or God is true or, or uh, you know, evidence for Christianity or for the Bible, for all of those things, one of the things you can do in the beginning is just ask them this. If Christianity was true, like if we're not debating that, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And you would be surprised at how many would still say no. Because they're not actually looking for the truth. They're looking to validate their own opinions. The problem is, is if, if Christianity was true, that means their life would have to change, and they don't want that. So if, if you could say, if, if I could prove to you Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And they still say no, it's because they're not actually interested in the first place. Much like these, Jesus could have told them over and over and over again. But they would still reject him. It also kind of goes to show, have you ever heard people like, man, if I lived in this time, I would be such a strong believer. The Pharisees lived in this time. They saw the miracles. They saw what Jesus was doing. They heard Jesus speaking to them directly, telling him who he was, and they still didn't believe. The reality is, is that some people just aren't interested in the truth. Amen. And then we'll go ahead and wrap it up here.
in verses 28 to 30. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me, and He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. So when Jesus said this, when he says, when you see the Son of Man lifted up, he's actually speaking of his death. Now a lot of us, a lot of people like to use this scripture, and, and actually the one in uh, 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 verse, uh, John 12, 31-33, it says, Now this is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Many people like to look at this and think, oh, that means if we lift up the name of Jesus, we're going to draw people to himself. And truthfully, I still think there's some truth to that expression. But what he's actually talking about is when he is drawn up, lifted up, and he's killed on the cross, he's speaking of his death here. And the reality is, is that in this day, this expression to be lifted up, that's what it meant. It was slang for being hung on a cross. And they knew what that meant. So... They would have known what Jesus was talking about here when he says on the day that the Son of Man is lifted up, when he's put on the cross, he says, then you will know that I am he. You see, when this day happened, they were going to understand who Jesus was. But don't make the mistake of knowing who Jesus is as being equivalent to believing in Jesus. There are many people that know who Jesus is, but they don't put their trust in him, so they're still missing the main point, which is to receive salvation by trusting in Him. There are many scholars today, a matter of fact, I don't think there's any credible scholars today who, who don't uh, agree that Jesus lived and walked this earth. The, as, uh, Christian scholars or secular scholars alike, everybody believes that Jesus really lived. This isn't something that's debated. So there are people that believe that Jesus is, but don't believe in Jesus. Amen. And we even know in the scriptures where it says, the, it says uh, Jesus says, oh, you believe you do well. Even the, even the demons believe in shudder. <laughs> so even demons believe you know, in Jesus in the sense that he exists. They know who he is. They know he's the son of God. But there's an extra step. You have to put your faith, <coughs> pardon me. You have to put your faith in him. And that's the difference. So what's going to happen though is through his death and resurrection, they're going to see the evidence that he is who he said he was. His claims were going to be vindicated. The fact that Jesus rode from the dead was, was God's stamp of approval that he had did what he came to do, that he accomplished what he was sent to accomplish. And when Jesus died and then was later resurrection, there, resurrected, there, was, there would be no doubt as to who he was. And they would understand that he did nothing on his own authority, but only on the authority of the one who sent him, because God the Father raised him from the dead. And they would know that Jesus was sent by the Father. There wouldn't be no confusion looking for some other guy. Like, hey, bring your father here to talk to him. They were going to know on that day that the father he was talking about was God the Father, and that God the Father was with him the entire time. And they would know, because we'd see that stamp of approval by him being resurrected, that everything he did was well-pleasing to God. And then it says, as he was saying these things, many began to believe in him. You know, on one hand, I'm so grateful that there were some who didn't decide to stay in that stubborn ignorance, but instead said, you know what? What he's saying is true. 
And we don't know all the details. We don't know who these people were. But we do know that uh, there was a large amount of people that believed in Jesus because when he rode in on a donkey, they were cheering and they were worshiping him. But just a few short days later, they were screaming to put him on a cross. That belief wasn't solid. It didn't stick, if you will. So I pray that these people that it's talking about here remained in belief and weren't the ones who fell away. Amen? Because the reality is, is that Jesus is the light. He illuminates our path. And the only way to not die in your sins is to put and keep your trust in Him. Amen?